Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. I just want to read from Psalm 119 before we begin. Psalm 119 verse 18 says this, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Think about that, the psalm about the word of God, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And then in verse 38 it says, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. So these are two prayers that I would like for us to pray together corporately as we begin to turn to the Word of God this morning, that we would behold wonderful things in God's Word, and that in beholding these wonderful things in God's Word, we would have reverence for Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the opportunity to come together and to hear your word preached, read, prayed, sung, all these things, Father. We pray that your word would do as it always does. It accomplishes what it's set out to do. It never returns void. So, Father, we ask that this morning you would help us to behold wonderful, glorious, beautiful things in your word about you and that in doing so we would have reverence for you that we would worship you, that we'd be in awe of you, and that we would go and live for you in obedience. Father, your word creates and sustains and gives life, and so we need your help this morning. Father, we all know that just the words of a mere man do absolutely nothing. It doesn't really matter what my opinion is on the matter. It matters what you've said. So, Father, show us in your word this morning what you've said so that we can walk away saying, I know that God has said that, and it's wonderful and it's beautiful, and I have reverence for him, and I want to live for him. Father, help us in this way this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to be reading from the last three verses In the Gospel of Matthew, this is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If not, I believe it will be on the screen for us this morning. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now the words that I just read to you are the last words in the Gospel of Matthew. And as you know, there are some common characteristics about last words. They're often vitally important, aren't they? Whether it's concluding a book with a paragraph or the final charge in a speech 
or the dying words of a man before he takes his last breath. We place a lot of emphasis on last words. In fact, we have many phrases to show how much we value them. Some people say, let me leave you with this, as though this is the thing you must leave with and hold on to for the rest of your life. Sometimes we say, whatever you do, don't forget this one thing. As though the next and last sentence out of my mouth is the most important thing I have said. Or perhaps I list four or five things for you to do and I conclude, above all, do this. As though my final words are the glue that holds everything together that I've already said. When a man comes to the end of his life, he looks at his family and he says, remember what I've told you. And we know for sure that the family will never forget what he told them. Because last words are crucially important. And so then you can see why our text today is crucially important. We have before us the last words of a long book called the Gospel of Matthew. And in these last words we come face to face with the mission of the church. But not only do we come face to face with the mission given, we come face to face with the mission giver. In fact, if you notice in verse 18, it says, Jesus came up and spoke to them. So these last words of the gospel of Matthew are spoken by Jesus. The disciples aren't speaking, but Jesus is. In other words, Jesus gets the last word in this book. And he uses these last words to give his people a mission to accomplish. So as we approach verses 18 through 20 this morning, the roles should be made perfectly clear for everyone in this room. Jesus is the one talking, we're the ones listening. Jesus gives instructions, we are to understand them. Jesus gives us a command, we give him our obedience. This is not a text that we have the right to ignore. It's not a passage that we can afford to misunderstand. And this isn't a suggestion as though we have the option of obedience. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I won't. And as with all the scripture, our role is to listen and to understand and to obey. And as Jesus' final words before he ascends into heaven, words that give us the very mission of the church the need to listen and understand and obey is only heightened, not lessened. And so these last words are not meant to simply conclude the gospel. These last words are intended to spark the proclamation of the gospel. When a book closes, for instance, with happily ever after, you close the book because it's done and everything's perfectly fine. There's nothing left to do but to smile and to be happy. But when the book closes with the command to go and to do, we close the book and then we lace up for the mission that's ahead of us. So my friends, these aren't the last words of a book that we simply close and continue life like normal. These are the types of last words that define our activity for the rest of our lives. So let's give them our listening ears our understanding minds, and our obedient hearts. This morning I plan to show you three things about these last words in the Gospel of Matthew and you'll see this outline shown in your bulletin that you have. First, 
we'll take a look at the mission giver. Second, we'll look at the mission given. And third, we'll notice the connection between the two. Let's begin by pondering the wonderful glories about the mission giver this morning. And surely that's what we're supposed to do because this passage begins with something about Jesus and it ends with something about Jesus. So in the middle of our passage, we have the mission given. But before and after this mission given, we have wonderful truths for us about the mission giver. And this teaches us that, ah, perhaps there's something about beholding the mission giver that will help us. Maybe we're intended to keep our eyes on the one who gave us the mission as we go and do the mission. So there are two massive pillars in this passage, two phenomenal truths about Jesus that will help us in our task to go and make disciples. The first one is in verse 18. In verse 18, you'll see the universal authority of Jesus. And by this, what I mean is his complete authority over everything and throughout everywhere. Point at a thing, he has authority over it. Look to a place, he has authority in that place. This is what he tells us in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Just consider what a profound statement that is. Since all authority is given to Jesus. That means there's no authority that he lacks. There's not some authority floating out there in the universe that he couldn't have but doesn't have. Whatever ultimate authority Jesus could have, he truly has all of it. He lacks absolutely nothing in the authority department. But Jesus says more than this. It's possible that someone could have all authority over a particular jurisdiction... Maybe you have all authority over a specific region of the world, but the type of authority Jesus has extends over everything and throughout everywhere. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This means there's not a single place that you could go where his authority runs out. There's not a distant land that you could travel to where he fails to have jurisdiction there. He exercises all authority over the creatures here below and all the angelic hosts in heaven. So just consider for a moment how the most authoritative people today pale in comparison to the authority of Jesus. For example, a president's authority ends where the legislative and judicial branches begin. A king's authority ends at the border of his nation. But Jesus' authority has no divisions, no ends, no borders. Every direction you look, for instance, Jesus has authority there and here and over there. Above the skies and beneath the seas, Jesus has authority over absolutely all of it. If you see an animal or you see a storm or a mountain or a person, Jesus has absolute authority, in fact, all authority over each of them. He has all authority one could possibly have. And he has that authority over absolutely everything and throughout everywhere. And so the question is, what should we do with that kind of information? It's one thing to claim this is true. It's another thing to live like it. Well, if Jesus has all authority everywhere, then certainly we should obey him. 
And now some of you might be here this morning who have no business thinking about doing the mission of God's people because you have yet to become one of his people. And the call for you today would be to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ by recognizing your need for him and trusting in him alone for salvation. He has all authority everywhere, which means he has authority over you. How long have you made a mockery of his authority by living life to your own liking and according to your own ways instead of his ways? Well, Jesus tells us that one day he will come in power and he will use his authority to punish all of those who oppose him. And so long as you turn from the gospel and live in your own way, trusting in yourself for salvation, you do oppose him. But Jesus also has the authority to forgive and to save. And he would do so right now if you would simply cast yourself in trust upon him. He's the one who paid the penalty for your sin on the cross so that your sins might be forgiven and you would receive the credit for his perfection. Friends, he has absolute authority and it's a scary, terrifying authority. But it's also a loving and merciful and gracious authority ready to receive you right now if you would come to him. And for those of you who are Christians, the implication is the same. If Jesus has all authority everywhere, then we should obey him. The command in verses 19 through 20 is given by a mission giver who has all the authority there could ever be to give such a command. This isn't a command given by somebody who's just sticking their chest out in pride and acting like they're important. This is a command given by the one who has every right to tell us what to do, where to do it, how to do it, and when to do it. If a king came to us and said, hey, go do this thing or go do that thing, a lot of us would say, yes, sir. What should we do whenever the God of the universe does the commanding? So you can see it's a useless thing to just simply say you believe Jesus has all authority. Instead, your life of obedience should show that you believe that that is true. And so the question is, do we as individuals, do we as a church Live like Jesus has all authority over us and everywhere by our response to this command this morning. And so the stakes are heightened. So the first thing that we see about the mission giver is his universal authority. But now let's consider another thing about the mission giver. His continual presence. You'll find this in verse 20. So after giving us this mission... In the second half of verse 20, this is what Jesus says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. And I want you to imagine with me a father and his son. And perhaps there's some kind of work that needs to be done out in the yard. Maybe maybe it's a farm and there's some animals that need to be fed. There's some hay to round up, there's some crops that need to be harvested. But maybe the son is a really small boy who's never done these things before and he's not strong enough to be able to do most of them on his own. So it's one thing for the father to come to this little boy and say, I have authority, therefore go and feed the animals and collect the hay and gather the yield. 
And of course, the father has authority to tell his son to go and do this, right? No one would question whether or not the father has the authority to give his son this command. But what if the father just simply commanded this boy and sat on his couch refusing to help him, knowing he couldn't do it on his own? What a great difference that would be compared to the father who commands his son and then stays with him through the whole process, helping him and aiding him at every turn and ensuring that the work gets accomplished just the way it's supposed to. Well, if you're like me, you might prefer the second father over the first father. And if that's true, then you'll be deeply encouraged by Jesus' promise in verse 20. Because I'm sure you often feel like the young boy who's never done these things before and I'm not strong enough to be able to do them on my own. I feel this all the time. The mission of the church is serious business and it's hard business. And if verse 18 is all that we had to go on, then we would wonder, how is this ever going to be accomplished? Well, verse 20 gives us the hope we need. Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As you go and do the mission given, the mission giver who has all authority everywhere is with you all the time. Now keep in mind what's going on at the end of Matthew here. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, which is where he is now. And so we and the disciples at that time could be worried as to how this mission is going to be accomplished with him gone. Well, these two truths about the mission giver give us hope. That while Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he still exercises absolute authority over all the earth down here. And he's always with us in this mission. What I think is so beautiful is that in the beginning of Matthew, the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and Joseph, and you probably know the story well, and tells them about the son that they're going to have, who's the son of God. And then Matthew says, this fulfilled a prophecy in the Old Testament. Here's what Matthew says. He says, it fulfills this. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So at the very beginning of Matthew, Jesus' birth means that God is with us. And then at the very end of Matthew, Jesus' words here tell us that God is still with us all the way to the end of the age, helping to ensure that this mission gets accomplished. And so everywhere we go in obedience to this command to make disciples, we need to remember these two things, these two pillars. Jesus has all authority everywhere. If you go to a group of people and they say, who gives you the authority to come here and tell me that my religion is wrong or the way that I'm living is in sin and that I need to repent and trust in Jesus? Your creator does. Your creator gives me the authority to come to you. He has authority everywhere. And he also tells us that he's with us always. So that if we're persecuted or maligned or ill-treated because of this message, he hasn't left us in those moments. So friends, with our eyes rightly focused on the mission giver, now we can look at the mission, give, the mission given. 
And there are three things to see with the mission given. First, I want you to notice the instruments of God's mission. In other words, who or what does Jesus use to accomplish his mission in the world? What are the instruments he uses? I mean, Jesus could have simply, he has all authority everywhere. He could have simply done this work using anything that he wished to accomplish it. But he's chosen to use his people. He's chosen to use his disciples. And we know this because in verse 18, it says, Jesus came up and spoke to them. Now, the them in verse 18 are the disciples in verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful, and Jesus came and spoke to them. These are the disciples. And so the mission given is given to disciples of Jesus. And that word disciple is a very simple term. That means follower. The command to make followers of Jesus is given to followers of Jesus. The command to go and make disciples is given to disciples. And the reason why this is such an important thing to pause and point out is because many of you in here are followers of Christ, which means this command extends specifically to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given a command to go and make other followers of Jesus. You were God's chosen instrument to complete his mission in the world. He has all authority in heaven and earth. And what he's chosen to do with that authority is invite you into his work and then send you out. Think about it. At some point in time, there was a disciple of Jesus. There was a follower who came to you and shared the gospel with you. It could have been a parent. Could have been a pastor, could have been a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker. But at some point in time, you became a follower of Jesus because followers of Jesus shared the gospel with you. And then they helped you become a more mature follower of Jesus. But now as a disciple of Christ, that title means more than just having a new name. It means more than just having a new life. It means you're given a new mission. Every follower of Jesus in this room is called to make followers of Jesus without exception. Not only the mature followers, not only the theologically astute. I mean, one of these followers was Peter who just denied him a few days ago. He sends him too. Not only the ones who've been following him for years, but every follower of Christ is called to participate in this disciple-making enterprise. The young and the old, the rich and the poor, the weak and the strong. Jesus commands all of his followers to go and make more followers. And so we've seen the instruments of God's mission. But now let's consider the target. Where do we go? Who do we go to? Well, if you were one of the 11 disciples in this passage... You would have listened to Jesus' actual voice speaking to you. And it would have been 11 Jews given a task. But it wouldn't have been a mission to simply go and gather more Jews. It would have been a mission to go beyond Jerusalem. Yes, to Jerusalem. But also beyond Jerusalem and make disciples of all the nations. Look at verse 19 closely. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. 
So the target of God's mission is the world. It's the people's. As Revelation reminds us, there will be a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation surrounding Jesus and praising him in the end. And friends, this has local and foreign implications. Neither of these should be forgotten or overlooked. But unfortunately, some people are fine with loving the nation so long as it's people in another continent and not people next door. And please, at least not in the same church. That's a tragedy. And it's an equal tragedy to only love the nations here, to build our own little kingdoms instead of having a heart to see the ends of the earth reached with the gospel. I mean, why should our hearts towards diverse neighborhoods and eclectic churches and nations afar be different than God's heart towards them? Aren't we His followers? Is He ours? You know, one of the blessings of living in the great melting pot of America is that you don't have to go to another nation to reach the nations. Because the nations are right here in our own backyard. And so, what are we challenged to do with this mission given, with the target of the nations? Well, we're called to make disciples of all the nations. Not just people who look like me and sound like me and have the same culture and upbringing as me, but we're called to make disciples of all the peoples without prejudice. And we should do that here even in our own backyards, which means diverse and eclectic neighborhoods like the one that we're in right now are not a hindrance to God's mission. They're the target of God's mission. And likewise, we should recognize that God's mission extends to the ends of the earth not just here in Conoke Hills and Winston-Salem. So Somalia and Kenya and Russia and Argentina and Afghanistan and England and so on. These are also the target of God's mission. And oftentimes churches can become so inwardly focused that we always consider our own growth and bottom line instead of how we can make sacrifices for the kingdom of God. And my prayer is that there would be rooms filled with diverse, kingdom-depicting, people who worship God, rooms filled with people here in Winston-Salem, rooms filled that eventually become a little less full because eventually we send a missionary to the ends of the earth. A little less full because a handful of families are intentionally sent to plant a church in a place that needs one. And while in that kind of situation we would cry tears of grief because we'd be sad to see faithful brothers and sisters go that we love so dearly, we would also rejoice for the sake of God's mission being fulfilled. And then we'd seek to see those empty seats filled once again. Rooms filled, people going to the ends of the earth for the sake of God's mission. Friends, what a joy it would be to be a part of this kind of disciple-making church and to be this kind of people. Friends, to do this, we have to constantly keep the target of God's mission in mind in our own backyard and to the ends of the earth. We have to make a conscious decision that we will be people who care deeply about the nations because God cares deeply about the nations. And so we've seen the instruments and the target of God's mission. What about the actual work of God's mission? What do we do? 
Well, I want to draw your eyes to the clear-cut command itself. In verse 18, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. The command is to make disciples. And that's extremely important. Because notice, Jesus didn't simply say, Go and preach the gospel. He didn't say to simply just proclaim the good news. He told us to do, in essence, the effect of those things. The focus is on helping people become followers of Jesus and then helping them become better followers of Jesus. So our goal is not to simply preach the gospel and hear people say, yeah, I believe. We're to preach the gospel so they do believe and then take them and show them how to love Christ their whole lives. And I get this because Jesus tells us what he means by making disciples in this text. He uses two little participles. Participles are a very important thing, not only because you learned them in elementary school or middle school and it helps you pass an English class, but because it helps you understand the Bible well. If I said, love your wife, I've given you a rather vague command, right? But if I said, love your wife, encouraging her and listening to her, Well, then I'm telling you how to love your wife now. Well, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus tells us how to make disciples. And he describes the whole process of discipleship. So take a look. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Baptizing and teaching obedience. When Jesus says to go and make disciples, he has baptizing and teaching obedience in mind. And this, of course, includes the whole process of disciple making. A part of that is evangelism. You go to a person, you share the gospel with that individual. And that's what Jesus has in mind when he says baptize them. Because we know that baptism is an outward symbol of an inward heart change. In other words, someone gets baptized once they become a Christian. And so if Jesus is telling us to go baptize, he doesn't just mean dunk people whenever we see them. He means to preach the gospel so that people would come to faith in Christ and then we baptize them. But he doesn't stop there. He also says in verse 20, to teach them to observe or obey all that he commanded. Well, that's not talking about evangelism. This is talking about discipling. This is talking about helping believers become more faithful followers of Jesus. And friends, I think about the life of Paul because he's, he's someone who did both of these things very well. Evangelism and discipling. When Jesus gave Paul his mission, this is what Jesus told him in Acts 26. He said that he was sending him to unbelievers, Gentiles and Jews, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith. So this was Paul and his hearers becoming Christians because of him preaching the gospel. He preached the gospel so their eyes would be opened. They turned from sin to God and be saved, forgiven. But Paul didn't stop there. Because in Colossians 1.28, he told us what his ambition was. And you know it's important when somebody has an ambition. 
he would take these believers and he would help them become more like Christ. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul would preach the gospel so that eyes would turn to Jesus for salvation. And then he would teach them obedience so they would be presented complete. This is evangelism and discipling. Jesus wants us to make disciples by adding new disciples to the church through evangelism and then strengthening those disciples through helping them to follow Jesus. And friends, the issue is that there's a tendency to focus on one over the other. Our tendency is to be solely focused on evangelism so that our buildings are filled with people, but our people are filled with immaturity. There's a lot of reaching out, but not a lot of building up. And then on the other side, there's the tendency to be so inwardly focused that our members are filled with knowledge and understanding, but there's no real desire to reach the lost. A lot of filling our heads with facts and not enough filling our hearts with the burden to reach others. Well, Jesus calls us to make disciples holistically, baptizing and teaching, sharing the gospel with them and then showing them how to follow Jesus more faithfully. And so if our tendency is to be super hyper-focused on one and not the other, the answer isn't to just cut this down and make it 50-50. The answer is to go all in with both of them. Let's go 100 this way, 100 this way. Let's make disciples as Jesus calls us to, fully focused on sharing the gospel and fully committed to helping them follow Jesus more. And this is why the church is so important, to go to people who don't know Jesus and to share the gospel with them so they come to faith in Christ and then bring them into a loving community so they can grow. Sending a missionary to a tribe that's never heard the gospel before so they come to faith in Christ And then organizing those new believers into a church so they can grow. Both of these have to be present. And so our job now should be to evaluate where we need to improve most. Reaching the lost to make new disciples. Or discipling one another to make more mature disciples. Or both. Who in your life is an unbeliever with whom you're working to share the gospel? So they might become a follower of Christ. And who in this room is a believer that you're working to help follow Jesus more faithfully? If you don't have people that come to your mind as answers to those questions, you need to ask God to give them to you. And you can start with the second one, helping one another become more faithful followers of Christ today before you leave the building. Committing to meet with a brother or sister, or to go on a walk with them, or to talk on the phone with them, to encourage them and help them. This is our work that we're to do to make disciples. Friends, as we close, I just want to make two brief comments. We've focused our eyes on the mission giver and we've taken seriously the mission given. And So I just want to encourage you as you leave about the connection between the two. The connection between the mission giver and the mission given. And I just want to remind us of what great a privilege it is to be able to partake in this mission that's been given to us by this mission giver. Did you notice in verse 18 that Jesus said all authority had been given him? That's weird. 
Why would this text say the authority had been given to him? Why didn't he just already have it? Well, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus often refers to him as the Son of Man. And we prefer the term Son of God, which is also accurate. But he preferred the term Son of Man. That was his term of choice. And that's because of a prophecy in the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, there was a prophecy given about the Son of Man who would come and be given an everlasting kingdom. And of course, this prophecy was about Jesus. And Jesus takes every moment possible in Matthew, which was written primarily to Jews. They should know about Daniel 7. He takes every opportunity possible to show that he is the promised son of man who has now been given the everlasting kingdom. And so when Jesus says all authority had been given to him, he's saying all authority is given to him like the prophesied son of man in Daniel. So here's that prophecy. And I'll show you why this is such a great privilege and so important. Daniel 7, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What's the point? Why is this a privilege? Well, the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who has been given an everlasting dominion so that all the nations might come and praise Him, is Jesus, the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so when Jesus sends us out to go and do a mission, that means you and I now have the privilege of going around the world and gathering up the people who are going to bow in His presence and worship Him for eternity. Making disciples is not just an ordinary task. We are given the privilege of being the very ones he uses to bring the nations before the prophesied Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the one who would be worshipped forever. And so why would we refuse such a great opportunity? The mission given is to bring people from all over before this mission giver. So perhaps you see this great privilege Maybe you see the mission giver and his universal authority and his continual presence. You may recognize the instruments and the target and the work of the mission itself. But you lack comfort to go and do it. And just be reminded that Jesus says he'll be with us to the end of the age. The language that he'll be with us is a way of God showing his approval and his help. That so long as we are making disciples and sharing the gospel and helping one another grow in Christ, He is blessing that work because it's His work. This is God's mission. And by God's grace, it's become the church's mission. So friends, whether you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever or you're encouraging a fellow Christian over coffee, Jesus says, I am with you always in that work while you're doing that. And I will be even to the end of the age. So I would say don't lose heart, Conoke. Don't lose heart, King's Tree. 
But instead, go and make disciples, knowing that the one who has all authority everywhere is with you all the time. Would you pray with me?